Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 58 of Control the Controllables. It feels strange saying that. It, it was only four and a half months ago, five months ago, that the idea was hatched to, to bring this podcast together. It was genuinely done for a, a bit of fun, you know, a bit of an opportunity maybe. It would have been nice to, to get some people listening and hopefully we could have shared some some stories and insights with those throughout the lockdown period and here we are now it's gone from strength to strength but I still go back to the basics of it the number one reason that we do these is is our own learning as well the the the, the chats and it's the it's the possibilities and the opportunities of speaking to these amazing guests I've taken so much personally from doing the podcasts and it's also helped connect me to some of you that have been listening to the podcast. So a big thank you to all of you guys. Please keep keep sharing, keep liking, keep letting your friend know about the podcast. And as we always say, it does help if you could just spare 10, 15, 20 seconds. Scroll down on the iTunes app down through the different podcasts from Control the Controllables and you have the opportunity to leave a rating and a review. So thank you for that. Who have we got today? We've got Magnus Tiedemann. Magnus was part of the Swedish revolution in the world of tennis many years ago from Bjorn Borg, Mats Verlander. And as Magnus talks about, he was number 11 in the world in juniors yet he was number five in Sweden. And then he got as high as 76 on the ATP Tour and has now been an ATP coach for the last 29 years. His highlight was coaching Thomas Johansson for many years, including the 2002 Australian Open champion, which is obviously an incredible feat, a Grand Slam champion, and to be worked with him as a junior as well. We get Bjorn Borg stories. We get a couple of Dan Evans and Dan Cox stories who have also been on the podcast. He spent some time in the UK. And he just shares very openly his thoughts. I try and dig a little bit into that and yeah, see what see what you think of that. See, but one thing that we know is Magnus has had a fantastic coaching career. He's a great guy and it's a great listen. So I'm gonna pass you over. To Magnus Tiedemann. So, so Magnus Tiedemann, welcome to Control the Controllables. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. It's fun to be there to help out and to maybe you have some listeners, I, I believe. Yeah, well, the whole the whole thing of the podcast, Magnus, has been to energize people, to to educate people and entertain them. So, I, I don't know. I don't know if you're going to do all three. But at least entertain us for the next next thirty or forty minutes. Yeah, I will try. I will do my best. <laughs> and and also, so for those listening, Magnus has been around as a as an ATP coach for for, for many years. You know, currently the the coach to Radu Albot, 
recently also coached Jeremy Shardy, who was with the LTA for, for many years. And, and his big, big experience was back in 2002 when he coached Thomas Johansson to winning the Australian Open. And you're fresh from a flight back from US Open, I believe. So how's the jet lag and, and how, how are you feeling? A little bit tired, but I'm used to it after so many years. Uh, uh, the feeling, uh, I think USA did a good work, good uh, work there with the bubble. Uh, I would say maybe people who lost uh, blame the bubble or something, but they they were actually okay, and it was nice to start working again. Yeah, no, fantastic. And and one of one of the big things I guess to to ask you to start with that came out the bubble that's been fascinating following it was was this big movement that's been put forward by by Novak and Vasek on the PTPA. Uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I have to say I'm not. I was not at the at the meeting. Uh, I believe, and I think they're still very good friend, friends with the ATP. They don't want to be like uh, get the out from the tour or anything. They just want to do to to cooperate. I would say, and and it's not as big change that people think. I believe so. Yeah. So it's kind of being blown out of proportion a little bit. I think so. They're not angry with anyone. They just wanted to be maybe more together and help each other more, and that's maybe a good thing. Uh, I, and I'm, I'm not expert is, uh, about this, really. Yeah. And what, uh, and what have you guys got now? So you're back, in, you're back home in Sweden, and then you're, you're heading out for the clay courts, I would imagine? Yes, yes. And uh, for the moment, I'm coaching Radu Albot, and yeah. um, we, are, we hope that team is winning tonight, then he will be main drawing Kitzbühel. So we, okay. are, uh, we are leaving... Tomorrow, if uh, if that's the case. Uh, otherwise, uh, we wait another week for Rome qualifying. Um, but for the moment, we hope that the team is beating Silic uh, tonight. And, and how, to those listening, like that, what a, it's such a bizarre existence. That's that's probably your normal life. You've been doing it for so long. But to not know whether you're about to get on a flight, all because of another tennis match out of your control. I guess that feels normal for you. Uh, not really normal because uh, most uh, of the time, like, if you have a good ranking, uh, you you know you that you get into the tournaments. So, but now Rado has been injured and also lost a little bit of ranking. And also in the beginning of this, of the Corona, everybody's enter every tournament. So the cut, the first cutoff in Kitzbühel, that means cutoff means the last player in the, in the main draw was 31 in the world. So yeah. uh, cool. for the, the last uh, year and a half with Rado, he's been main draw all the time. And even before I was with Chardy, he was main draw all the time. So no, it's not normal. This is a little bit strange okay. for me to, to, uh, and for, for Rado to, to wait to the last minute. Okay, so we'll be cheering on Dominic later. Yes. That's for, that's for sure. And, and in terms of, I always find it fascinating someone who, how many years have you now coached on the tour for, Magnus? Um, 29, I think. 29 years. So, so go, going back before that, how did, how did tennis become a, a, a main part of your life when you go back to, to your childhood years? I mean, I started early and we were, we were quite good in Sweden at that, that time. Um, yeah. I was, as junior, I was 
I would think I was 11 in the world and I was number five in Sweden. So wow. I, didn't, I didn't know if I would turn pro because I was not good enough, I thought. But then <laughs> we, were, we were very good. We had Nyström, Villander, Sundström, if you remember. We had so many guys. And, and, and when I, I turned pro, I was pro for nine years. So tennis has been in, in my blood since I was 17 or even earlier. But I've been pro since 17, eight, 18 years. And then I've been traveling a lot and uh, the last four months was the, my record to be home in, in, in the row because I've been traveling s so many years first as a player and then I, mm. I went straight to be a coach. And for those listening again Magnus I believe as high as 76 in the world? Yeah 74, 76 something like that it's, it's so long ago but I was, I was inside 100 that's a milestone I would say and still if you're top 100 it's like a good number to have i think what, what type of tennis player were you boring one <laughs> swedish <laughs> kind of but a uh, little bit uh, running and uh, didn't miss so much and uh, and uh, good fighter i was always a good fighter but uh, it was, it was quite that, boring was that taught back in sweden because it, it seemed like that was kind of the way that a lot of swedes played back in the day Yes, because we saw Borg. Borg was our hero and he was standing back yeah. and he didn't miss a lot and he could run for, for hours. So for us, was Borg was like uh, the, the, the one we looked, uh, looked up to and, and the, the one we wanted to play like two-handed backhand. And that was like our idol. Yeah, it's a good idol to have. Yeah. And, and, how, and how did you then get into tennis coaching? I, I didn't, I was... I had a good ranking in top 100 when I was like 20 and then when I was uh, older I I didn't play so well and, and you, if you don't play well you lose money to travel and then in, I remember Villander called me and asked if I would like to, to help him like a friend slash coach 90 I think it was 90 and uh, I went like with him for six months and then he stopped <laughs> stopped for for a couple of years there, he, st he started again '95. But uh, that's and then the federation called me if I want to go to Orange Bowl. It's a big junior tournament in, in December in Florida uh, because they knew I, I was not doing anything because Matt, I stopped with Matt in uh, in after Queens actually Queens yeah. Club tournament there and uh, and then I, I yeah and I didn't know who I'm gonna go with and they said there's two junior here Thomas Johansson and Magnus Norman and they were. 15 and 16 and I didn't I, I heard the names but I never seen them so I met them at the airport and then I coached them for three years together after wow. that but not full-time federation I didn't have that kind of money but so they paid a little bit but I was with them for three years more or less uh, and then they were top inside 100 both of them and they lived in Monte Carlo so federation wanted me to start with five new guys but then Thomas asked me to continue privately and I did eight more years with him privately after that. So to pull you back, it's not often we get someone who's been so close to Mats Valander and possibly Bjorn Borg. Have you got any stories you can share about those legends of the, of the sport? Yeah, with Borg, Borg I mean, Mats, uh, he's a good friend. So, so I, uh, I, but Borg was <laughs> funny. In 1982, it was... Uh, he lost to McEnroe, I think it was 81, the final. The, the, the year after that long tie break yeah. was like, 
yeah. yeah and then he yeah. didn't play he didn't play for a year almost and then he's he called me up for practice on his island outside stockholm the year after he lost in the final and he wanted to practice for 10 days and all the best players in sweden were in wimbledon 82 mm. i think i think this was 82 yeah it was 82 i remember now yeah so i was like the best in sweden not playing wimbledon so I was 18 years old, so I went to his island for 10 days. He had a hard court there. We, we played a five-set match in the morning and then a five-set match in the afternoon for 10 days. And wow. I got blisters. I got, I got killed. I got like two, three games every set for 10 days. That's like 20 <laughs> matches I lost. And, and, but he was so good. And... And that year I played with, with Mats also in Boston and I took a set in a match. Uh, Borg was another level, I would say. Even that Mats won Paris that year. So Borg was like so good. And, and then, uh, and also when, it was a good story, I think. When I, when I came by boat with, with his coach, Ber, Leonard Berglin, who's, who's passed away a couple of years ago. Um, Borg was at the... Uh, Harbor, his island had a little harbor there. When, when I, I'd never met him before, so I was really nervous. It's a big thing, you know, Borg was like Absolutely. A, yeah, so he came in the morning to, to, to say hello, and he had a, his uh, morning robe. What do you call this? Uh, like a... Dressing gown. Board, like, yeah, like for when you... Yeah, when you wake up or after shower, you yeah, have yeah. this uh, long... What, what, what do you yeah. call it? Dressing gown, dressing gown. Yeah. There was Boss on the back, you know, Hugo Boss. I, I never heard of Hugo Boss. It was Boss on the back. So I thought, that's a little bit, that's a little bit cocky, I think, to have Boss. But for me, he was the Boss. But I, I, I learned that it was Hugo Boss. That was the brand of this. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but uh, I thought he meant like he was the Boss. So I was, yeah, I was yeah. scared first. But a very nice person. And like I said, we played. He never had any drills. Only matches in his whole career. I don't no, care. Yeah, no drills. So, but you had to be ready because he was running off the balls and and tempo was there, hard, hard, really good. And after he kicked your ass, was he was he engaging with you during them, or was it just absolute business? Like when he did it? No, he's nice. He's nice. But when you play, he didn't talk. He was like very focused. After that, there was the World Cup soccer in Spain that year. So we saw a, a game together, lunchtime, and a game after the second period. But he didn't like he didn't oh, like say how I should play or something. But but he didn't miss. So I learned not to miss in, in easily because we warmed up. And if I missed two or three, like the coach and him said, "Come on, don't miss so much. Like, you're, yeah. you're nervous." You you. And and I like that kind of thing. So the same when when my when I start in England later when they play with Andy and so on, they, yeah. they you know that if you miss too much, they they, they get pissed a little bit. So yeah, you, yeah. You, you really focus. That's why it's good to play with these good players. Uh, this uh, you, you really raise your game a bit. You have to, otherwise they don't call you again. No, no, absolutely. I, I had a another Swedish legend who was a big hero of mine a little bit later, but Stefan Edberg. Yes. And, and Stefan obviously was, was training in, in the UK. That's where, where he was living. And when I was about 16, I, I got the call because again, a, a few guys were away to go and practice with the Queens club indoors. 
and very similar. It, 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 he didn't say one word during practice. It was very like, whoa, someone caught with Stefan Edberg. And when we played sets, I remember the first set I played with him, I was so nervous. I think I went five love down, and I think I won one point. And, <laughs> and, and at five love, he just looked at me and, and patted me on the back and said, come on, Dan, come on, Dan. And, wow. and, and anyway, I ended up getting to the point where maybe the second set I won two games or, you know, I settled a little bit. But uh, that exact, that feeling to have of just that these players that bring that pressure is incredible. And is that something you've then taken into your coaching career? Yeah, yes, I think so. I mean, I, my father always said, like, when you're on the court, you, you have to be focused. Outside, you can play in the sand, he said. But when you go into the court, this is your job, in a way. So, I, I, I think yeah, hours is important, but the time, the quality, it's, it's even more important. So, if you play three or four hours a day, I would say it's important sometimes, but mostly the quality inside these hours is very, very important, I think. Yeah. You think a lot of coaches, coaches, academies, clubs make that mistake around the world, do you think? Yeah. I, w I would say maybe less now because they are also getting a little bit lazy, the coaches. They don't play two, two sessions at two hours anymore so much. So yeah. there's more physical also in tennis. So you need more time at the gym as well. But I'm, I'm not really, really happy with this uh, taking away a session of tennis because of the gym. I know it's yeah. easier as a coach to say that, but I would say play. You need also your hours. So, yeah. uh, yes, and, and, and no. Uh, depends also. If you're winning a lot of matches, you don't need to play two sessions, uh, two hours every session. But if you start to lose Mondays or Tuesdays, you need them. And uh, I, I really think so. Uh, maybe when you start to beat 29, 30, 31, then you know that then, then you can do like a three-hour session or two and a half and, and stuff. But, but when you're young, I, I really think you need a lot of tennis because it's a difficult sport, I would say. Yeah, incredibly so. And there's, there's, no, there's no secret out of a slump. You're losing matches. It's it's hard work, isn't it? It's put you've yeah, got to put the work course. in. You've got to put the hours to to work your way through it. Yes. And Thomas, so Thomas Johansson. So, what what year did you start working private privately with Thomas? Uh, there must be ninety five. I would say ninety five, nine, ninety six. I, I believe ninety six. I think. So you had a you had a six six year journey to the Australian Open. Tell it tell us about those six years before we move into the Australian Open experience. Um, I mean, he was very talented and quite lazy uh, compared to I had Norman. He was the other way around more. Or less. He was mm -hmm. quite kind of a, of course you had talent, but he was a little bit more hard worker. He, he wanted to play five hours and Thomas maybe two hours. Right. And, and for running, Magnus could run two, two hours and Thomas didn't want to run at all. I had to play squash with him. So uh, he's, he's like a little bit special. He doesn't like sports so much. Like if I come to his room watching TV, he has uh, some animals <laughs> on TV channel or whatever they call the history channel and stuff. Yeah. He, he, does, he didn't like sports so much. It's, it's, but he liked competition and he liked to, to, to win. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit strange there, and of course you like money, and you like to be 
you like to make money. So, but but he he was not really a fan of sports. It's a little bit crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it is. It's you you don't see you don't see it very often. And if we if we move to the two thousand and two Australian Open, if you ask the question in a quiz out of the last twenty years. Who was the most unlikely Grand Slam winner at a male at a male Grand Slam event? I would imagine Thomas would would come up as one of the answers, one of the top three answers. Was it was it completely out the blue for you as the coach, or did you feel that he was ready? Uh, that year also Costa won Paris, uh, so it right, uh, that's two thousand two right. was I would say two of the three was in Ooh. the same year. Um, it was actually a little bit of a good story with, with this uh, Melbourne because uh, he normally in, in November, December, when the year is finished, the year before it's finished, they, they, get, they go to holiday and then they get sick for 10 days and, and they don't play for a month and then we start a little bit. But that year, we, he was fine. You know, he went not so long holiday and we did a lot of work, fitness, tennis uh, he was really really motivated uh, that year and then we started in india he was he was 16 in the world he was not like 50 so he no. was 16 so yeah, yeah. He, he was he was quite good i would say <laughs> but yeah. uh, um, he was top seeded in india lost quarter final and and completely tanked second set against shishipan if you remember uh, yeah. um Yes, uh, who was on his way up, and I said he's good, and he said, "No, come on, he was he was not good. Like he was really down and tanked." And we went from there to Australia, and he played um, in Sydney the week before. Also, I think second or third seed, he lost to Butter, you know, the French, yes. the French guy. Yeah. But there it was a complete tank, like uh, didn't try at all. Was wow. fall in love or something? So we, he wanted to leave. Um, he said, I can't play on this island. It's windy island. I never play good in, in Australia. I want to go home. So, so I said, uh, yeah, why, why don't you go home? I mean, <laughs> and, and his wife was there and, and they had to talk to you the whole night and he really wanted to go home. It was crazy. And, and, and I went to, and I said to him, oh, there's two, two options. Either we don't play for three days and I go punish you in the park, just running and, and stuff and no tennis. And then, um, or we go home. And then he talked with his wife there and they decided, let's, let's go for Melbourne. I'm here already, but I will not win the match. I can't play on this island. So win the island, he said. And this is true. It's true. It's, and it's I, amazing and I, I remember, story. And I really, really pushed him, like stupid stuff, like in the park there, um, outside yeah. the hotel. We, we run off the balls, you know, and, and let me call it, in Sweden, we call it idiots. You, you pick balls and you pick balls and you, like crazy stuff. He was cramping and, and so on. And we went to Melbourne. We had a day off. And then I had a breakfast with Enquist coach. And I said, this is our, our last tournament together. I said, this is really, this is our last tournament because he's not normal, this guy. He doesn't try. And, 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 and then he played. He had a good draw and he started to win matches. And then suddenly with the draw, every, I guess he lost and, and, and Henman lost and Bjorkman. He played, it was rainy, we played indoors, it was better, but everything went his way. And every day was well, like wind, not wind and 25 degrees, not 40 degrees, not windy. Everything went his way and the draw went his way and he played fantastic. So, yes, I was surprised, but if you're 16 in the world and everything goes your way, you have, you have a chance. 
And in the final, uh, Safin, I mean, that's, that was his best match. And Safin, people think he was out and party, but he, I mean, he's a good player. And, and, and Thomas, he won in four sets. It was a great final, actually. It was a seven-six in the fourth set as well, if I remember. Yes, yes, that's the. I would say Thomas was never nervous in 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 situation there. Mostly in the beginning, or if he had a good draw, he got nervous in tournaments. Or if he played a wild card, he got nervous. In that situations, like Davis Cup, Grand Slams, he was not so tight. But in the end, there when I think he was up six-one or six-two in the breaker, and he played awful the last four games. He was he was lucky to win that the last point, but. I've never been in. I will never been in that situation. So of course, but he got tight there in the end. But that was one of his strengths. He he never got tight in in the end of matches. But there he got tight. But he won anyway. And as because what uh, we've had a few people on the podcast. Like we've had we've had Johnny Mare, Freddie Nielsen, who talked about their Wimbledon Wimbledon journey. You know, we've had we've just had a few different people talked about Grand Slam experiences of kind of playing without expectation. And maybe Thomas, I guess, going in and you going in there without expectation. But normally there comes a point where the expectation hits. So maybe it's quarterfinal stage, maybe it's semifinal stage. Did you guys go through that cycle and that journey throughout that run? Or did you manage to just kind of keep it, keep it flowing? Yeah, we, we kept it like that. He's been in two quarters in US Open before that. And, yeah. and the semis in Wimbledon was later. But yeah. he was... He was he was like really cool in even in small in normal ATP tournaments. He, he normally lost first or second round, or he went to semis or final. Yeah. He, in I think his first nine finals in ATP, he won nine. So wow. he he was always playing well uh, when he was playing well. Like <laughs> he knew yeah, that yeah. I'm playing well, so he, he didn't get tight. He he's different, and yeah. and that's a very good strength. But but he he didn't get tight at all. In, in the first match in Davis Cup was semi-final against Moya, and he beat him wow. when he was young. So it's he he, he was nervous for diff, different nervousness, I would say. Yeah, yeah. A big match player, and how yeah. and and how was that experience and feeling for you? The pinnacle of our sport, winning a Grand Slam as, as a coach. Yeah, I was I was quite young, but but it was like. Uh, I knew that they will not happen like, like very often for anyone. So uh, I was I was super happy for him and for for the team. And but I don't remember I was like really really happy. And 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 I knew that if you do that like as a coach, they will, you will always be remembered. It's like it's super big and it's yeah. a big sport. And, and uh, but when I was there in into the tournament you don't think so much about it it's just next day you 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 look at the opponents you talk about the match and then you go to bed and next man i mean it's yeah of course yeah yeah and, and did that bring did that win bring any challenges of almost i would imagine he became more famous and and more things kind of come on the side of winning a grand slam what challenges did that bring yeah he was for him was a little bit strange because he that year after the final he got his knee was starting to hurt so he didn't play so many tournaments the rest of the year and and then they find out the patella tendon in the knee was almost cut 90 percent. so he had operation and he was gone for 12 months after that okay 
So we were bike, biking in, in the gym when the next uh, final in Australia was playing on TV. So he's the first oh, winner didn't, who didn't try to, to come back the next year. So we were, it was like, after that was a bad year, I would say, for the injury. And then, and then it took a long time to get better. And then he went back to top 14 again. He was same as Wimbledon 2005. So he, had to, he came back strong. And were you still with him in 2005? Yes, we started, we stopped in 2005, yes. And for those listening, obviously, I mean, you've, you've got an example there of working with a player for a long time. How does a relationship like that come to an end? He, he wanted only help on the Grand Slams. We had a really, he's a godfather for my kid and I'm godfather for both his kids. We are best friends still. So. Yeah. We, he, he just wanted to have helps in Grand Slams. And I said, this is not enough time for me to do a good job. And it's not, a time, it's not enough money to, to earn a living for, let's say, eight weeks. And, and uh, so, so we, we, we had good talk. We had good talk. And, and uh, I said, I don't want, I'm too old now. I don't want to help all the time. So, okay. And um, so, so um, it's, I mean, together we're 12 years together. So I would say it's, it's enough maybe. <laughs> yeah, and, it's, and is it always that amicable on the tour when coaches and players split up? No, 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 no. And it's sad sometimes when you're together so long and it's maybe ends up with money issues or uh, I don't like that at all. I think you're, you're, you eat more breakfast with your player than with your wife, I would Absolutely. say. So, so it's sad when I heard this kind of stuff. But it happens. It happens. Yeah, no, I'm sure it does. And how does it, how does it feel for you now? Go back to, go back to those, that orange ball when, when the boys were 15 to now see Magnus and Thomas coaching on the tour as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. It's a good feeling. I mean, then you, I think as a coach, you're not only coaching tennis, you're coaching life also. Like, well, how to behave and how to, how to, to treat people. And, and uh, I think that's including as a coach, and maybe not in the clubs because you have so many different people coming in. But if yeah. you travel with people, of course, it's how, how nowadays I would say the little bit young coaches and they're so happy with the work and they're a little bit scared to lose the jobs and they're yeah. a little bit too nice to players so yeah, yeah. They, they lose manners a little bit because nobody even the parents and the agents are only backing up the players whatever they do more likely now than before so that's a little bit sad i think i see it i've seen it more actually no absolutely if you if, i guess for the for the coaches and for for coaches listening if that's your own that's your only single income and you're relying upon the player to play to pay you that it's a, it's a very different mindset to to a lot of jobs or to a lot of coaching jobs in other sports you know if you're the if you're the coach of Manchester United you're you're technically employing the player whereas when the player is when the when the player is employing the coach there's almost a different power switch there and you can see how some coaches are maybe afraid to to put their job on the line yeah, it's a strange sport because I would say golf maybe, but I would say the caddies are a little bit lower ranked than the tennis yeah. coaches. They have golf, they have golf coaches sometimes, but they don't travel much. But 
I have to be the boss, but the the person I coach has to pay me. So it's really yeah. it's not normal situation compared, like you said, to other sports. So, but still, you need to be kind of a boss. Yeah. And in the long term, I would say that's. Uh, uh, you had to be like that because you lose your job anyway. If you're, yeah. if you're the second guy, and, and then then they don't need you so much for no, long no. term. Absolutely. But on the golf one, golf coaches tend to coach more than one player. It yes. tend, I think it tends to be that you know they turn up to a European Tour event and they're actually coaching four or five of the players. So obviously, yeah. so so not all of their eggs are in that one basket, but. Moving you into, I suppose how how that relationship works. So so let, if you're you're with Radu, do you have any security of contract for time, or can he get rid of you tomorrow? Uh, yes, he can, and I can also get rid of him tomorrow. I would say I like that kind of because it will not work anyhow. If if he doesn't listen, yeah, I have to stop with him because yeah. uh, and and. Of course, he can say, I'm tired today. I don't want to run. That's fine, because then we talk. But if he starts to do that, if he, like in a pattern, you, you feel it like he doesn't want to do this, what I'm saying. I don't, the baskets today, basket, no serves today. Then, 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 of course, and I don't want to work. If he doesn't like me, if I have a contract, for example, three months uh, after yeah. the day you start, I will not do one day because I need somebody who trusts me. And he, so I think, it's both ways. I can stop and he can, he can stop with me also. I think that's normal, but it's a crazy job situation. Yeah, because that, but that's after 29 years. You've coached the Grand Slam champion. And you've, kind of, you've earned your reputation in the sport. But why, why would a younger coach jump into that where there's no job security? And if they, they've got a good job working in an academy, they've got a good job working at a federation... Why are they going to take the leap to working with a player knowing that it could end any, any minute? I would say every job in any sport, they want to go to the highest level. And, and if you yeah. coach someone on, on, in Wimbledon or US Open, you, you, you are involved, you see all the, the best players in the world. So they, they can even go without salary sometimes, the young ones because they want it so badly and yeah. and i see it a little bit more on the women's tour than the men's tour because they are hitters first and then they from hitter to become a, a coach is like nothing so it's a it's easier to go that way i would say uh, i've seen it all the time but on the men's it's a little bit more uh, older guys i would say but but it's it happens as, as in the in the men's tennis too but in your experience do you think that some of the best coaches just never actually coach on the tour? Uh, they're very good coaches on the academies around the world and, and, uh, and also clubs, yes, of course. And, and what's your opinion on, I guess we're talking about the, the level you're coaching, it's high performance, it's the, it's, the, it's the top end where you're trying to squeeze those extra 1% or 2% out. And obviously, without saying names, I'm a big believer in being a high-performing coach. You know, and obviously, Magnus, you have very much been a high-performing coach throughout your career. But, but do you think that there's a lot of coaches on the two, a men's and women's side, who, albeit are working at the high-performance level, that aren't high-performing? I didn't get that really. You mean if they are, they are, they are really good 
coaches and they are not there. So in, 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 in short, is there some crap coaches on the tour? In oh, the yes. oh, yes, yes. Of yeah, course. You, you, you see it, huh? Yeah, yes. In the, men, in the women's tour, sometimes the, the hitters are going straight to, to be a coach. Uh, so uh, they can be good, can be very good coaches, but it's a, a little bit uh, quicker. You skip a few years, I would say, coaching in the women's tour because you're a hitter and you're a good hitter, and then you, you become a, a coach after that. But uh, even in the men's tour, I've seen young people coming up and then I would say less. Uh, yeah. But they're also good, so you don't know, but it's i've seen a few yes and they probably taking a little bit less paid and sometimes yeah. they, they leave it they stay in the double room with the player as yeah. a friend so they they save money that way so yes it happens it's just a funny such a funny sport when in most in most sports it's the pinnacle it should be the pinnacle and that's where the the best coaches should graduate up up to that level you know it's it's yes. I, I can never quite get my head around and on that magnus if let's say you're you've stopped working with a player or a player's stopped working with you, how does the next job come up? Is it are you approaching players and letting them know you're available? Are you how how does that work? Who approaches who? Um, it's tough to call players. I mean, if you uh, so what I do, I stop a few times and then I let my name out with the agents around the world I know many names with agents and they have players and and it's a little bit of a small world uh, it talks goes around uh, I would say 15 years ago you changed your player in, in October November for next year now it could happen anytime uh, much uh, quicker now you stop with your, with your player and then before it was only in the end of the year so Yes, I go agents, and then uh, you, you world your name is uh, around. You know, you maybe talk to your former player if you have a good relationship, or he, or uh, other players around, other coaches you know, and then the, it goes quite quickly. It's just, it's just not so not so many players uh, have uh, money to pay a coach, so it's actually no. we. It, it's a little bit of a small world out there. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like the agent uh, recruitment consultants. It seems like they're kind of playing playing that middle role. So it's not. I guess my question. I guess what I'm trying to get at in in academy tennis or club tennis, you know, and you would have seen it from your time in the UK. There's there's a lot of talk on coaches stealing players, which I don't believe in to be honest. Because I think if you're doing a good enough job, you're doing a good enough job. But does that happen on the tour? No, I would not say that. No, yeah. no. It's very rarely that uh, somebody take a contact with a player as long as he has a coach. No, I, no, I would not say so. And take it, <laughs> take, taking you to the LTA job, how, how, did, how did that come about, Magnus? Um, I stopped with Thomas that 2005-ish, I would say, if I remember right. And then, and then I called Russian Federation and I called English Federation, or LTA, sorry, British Federation, LTA. Uh, and uh, I had to say uh, Britain, uh, I said England, England a lot of times when I started and that was not nice. So now I say Britain more. Um, and I called uh, David Felgate and, and Jeremy Bates was the head, head of men's tennis there. And 
I know them from way back. I mean, I played, I played with them yeah. many years before. And uh, I came to a meeting in Bolton at the arena, the football arena there. The LTA had the big uh, thing. And um, I got hired for, for, they had two players, Dan Cox and Dan Evans yeah. was uh, good. They were 16 and they were like European top. Yeah. And so my first, my job was to coach them and also to coach British coaches to be better. That was my two, two, um, two works, two, two things to do. Yes. Yeah. And that, I believe it was 2006. And what's your, what's your take on people talk a lot about how successful foreign coaches have done a great job, had success and then they then they come to to Britain to the LTA to get the big check to come and settle. Is that something that you saw happen in, during your time? I didn't know what happened before, but I, I I really look back for these years and I have a fantastic time. And I didn't only coach these two guys. We had a big group and we really punished them. We we were almost too tough. So I don't know. I had a good salary, but not crazy. And, and I don't know the other ones, but we, we did good hours with these boys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and maybe too much because Golding won US Open stopped and Morgan semi-final Australia and US Open and Wimbledon win in double. He stopped. I think we maybe pushed them too long if I, if I really yeah. are honest. But to push people also... You, you get something out of it. I mean, Dan and Edmund, they, they become very well, very good. So, but we were really, we were tough. We, 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 we killed them almost. We did five, six hours a day for, for many years, really. Yeah. And what was, and what was your, what was your overarching take on the British tennis culture, which sometimes gets a, an unfair knock? Yeah. Um, it was a little bit strange because when I arrived, the, the juniors did, they didn't have any ranking at all, royal ranking, like junior ITF ranking. And, and I said, uh, I don't really a big fan of, of that, but where are they playing? I mean, they're not good enough to play ATP tournaments, like uh, Futures, and, and a satellite, it was already, I think, or Futures, and, and, they're not, and they have no ITF points, so they don't play enough, I said. And they didn't play enough. And then we maybe in a couple of years later they played was too many who played ITFs too much. Mm -hmm. We the half the draw in Portugal was, was LTA or or from Britain. That's not good either. But but we really we we got a good squad and we we they, I think you should play juniors if you're not good enough to play futures. That's uh, how I see it. But uh, it was really fun time and and I didn't. They were working hard and and not yeah. so much. I felt a little bit like. The other clubs uh, outside, like the other academies around Britain, didn't like LTA, and I really wanted to to change that. So when we, my boys were playing somebody else from Bath or whatever, Loughborough, I was not coaching because we are the same island. I said this is a small yeah. island. You guys didn't like that, but <laughs> it's mm -hmm. a small island and keep together. And you need to be against the others, but. Sometimes I felt like Bath really wants to, to beat the LTA guys. So, mm. But in the end of the time, the, the money Bath got was from LTA. So I didn't understand 
in the beginning, uh, and I think it got better actually, but in the beginning it was like us Queens people against other places in Britain, and that's no good. That's no good. That doesn't help you to develop as a country. I think it got better. I hope it's better now. I haven't, I don't know, but that was a strange situation for me that they really want our guys to lose because they get everything or whatever. I don't, yeah. I don't know. It was really, really strange. Yeah. I never had this feeling anywhere, but. Uh, so anyway. you don't, do you not think that's normal in other countries? No, not at all. Okay. I would say in, in club matches, yes, but. I don't think somebody from Lyon is, is jealous about somebody from Paris or, or yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think so in Australia, if Perth, they are friends with guys from Brisbane or Melbourne. I, in London, in, we were really, they didn't like us at all, but I really felt after we got, they got better like that, I think. Yeah. yeah, well, I think you've hit the nail on the head, to be honest, Magnus. And I think <laughs> if I go back to... 25 years ago when even longer 27 years ago they used to have the rover tennis initiative in britain so it was sponsored by a car company rover and yeah. and i was selected alongside maybe another two or three in each age group to be on the rover tennis initiative and i certainly i remember walking to different tournaments and okay we had to wear we had an identity, so it was very obvious who we were when we walked into the into the tennis centre. And I used to yeah. feel the hatred. <laughs> I used to feel yeah. like a real strong hatred. And actually, in reality, we were thirteen and fourteen year old boys at that time, or girls. And yeah. and that it wasn't nice. It never felt it never felt like we were a tribe together trying to create something special. You know, and I, I certainly can't comment on how it is now, but it, it has a little bit of a feeling from afar that they've started to get a little bit more of a togetherness going uh, with, with, the, with the country, which moves, yeah. me on, which moves me on to Sweden. <clears throat> you know, obviously you talked about back in your day and even after that, it was, it was a powerhouse of world tennis. So, so, what, so what's happened to Sweden over the last 15 years or so? Um, not much. Uh, I got I I get these questions a lot over the years. Uh, I mean, but I really don't know. I think the clubs was very strong before in Sweden. The federation was never strong, uh, but but the clubs had a good good uh, almost awfully one coach, and they had this running on Wednesdays and. Uh, tournaments on the weekends and in the summer comes up you play 80 matches and stuff but now they and i understand them also the coaches take holiday in the summer they don't juniors doesn't play in the summer we play in the winter we play indoors all the time and weekends they don't follow to 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 the matches because they want to be home and i understand that but it was different before and, and i don't know I, I i really don't know we are a little bit lazy maybe yeah, and it's not, not tennis is a difficult sport. You need to practice a lot, and maybe it's more fun with video games. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Maybe. Yeah, we, yeah we, we are struggling in Sweden, really. And is there any signs of that changing? Not really. No. Yeah. And I'm traveling a little bit. I'm not around the really 12, 14, but from 16. and. And we had these summer tours in some in the summer now a little bit, uh, and then the level is not super super high, I would say. But there is people who tries, but they're, 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 there's not so many. 
So when, so when are you, Magnus and Thomas, going to go back and take over the Swedish Federation and sort it out? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting very old. <laughs> I think, I, I don't know. I don't know. But, but I, I love the sport and and uh, and, uh, but. Uh, I don't know. There's new people there, and they 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 try hard, and and hopefully they they succeed. But maybe they need an, a new star, so like new really good players, like so they can follow more. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. You know? We thought maybe the Emar the Emar brothers were were certainly touted to be maybe the next ones coming through, but <clears throat> they haven't quite kicked on yet. No, but they are not bad. For, yeah. Don't forget if you're like top hundred, two hundred, you. If you're a footballer, you play for Arsenal, and Absolutely. and 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 nobody is playing for Arsenal. Nobody got ask him, "Can you improve?" They think they're yeah. the gods, you know. Yeah, so yeah. they are okay, but not like super good, not not like superstars, I would say. You know what we need. Just last last couple of questions, Magnus. Uh, there's so many things I'd love to ask you, but I, I, I'm conscious of your time. In terms oh. of your in terms of your philosophies. 29 years on the tour, being around the sport at the very highest level. Talk to me, what's your philosophies? Uh, I would say the last, uh, last years, it's more physical, absolutely. Um, now this, the court in US Open was super, super fast, but there was something wrong. But normally it's very slow, so, so you need to play from the back more. Uh, and... Uh, and uh, strong from both sides and, and hit very hard and it's less finesse I have to say it's sad but you need finesse but it's less you ne- you have less time for finesse because it's more it's slower and, and it's more ground strokes it's hard from both sides and and what's what's changed in the game and what's stayed constant through those 29 years the constant is you still you still need the the ball inside the lines, otherwise yeah. you lose. But um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's quite strange because when I was with Thomas, there was a lot of fast courts, there was a lot of supreme courts, mm. um, and uh, and during that time they, they started to change the indoor courts to 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 uh, uh, slower uh, slower courts. So you, we need to change his game during his career. Actually, we we, we tried practice more ground strokes and more rallies kind of because before you can actually serve and volley sometimes it's the, you can't do it anymore almost it's it's i would say sad yes but that's reality but people are hitting so hard with this uh, uh, looks along strings i mean the the this tough to play volleys and and to slice and stuff so it's a little bit kind of boring but but that's how it goes and and uh, People are passing so well nowadays, and and in practice, even now, they, they everybody's overheating in practice. And and if they have a good day, they can beat anyone. So no, it's it's actually hard. Everything is harder. Even the rally rally ball is harder now. So everything goes a little bit quicker. I would not say every year, but if you go five, ten years back, uh, it's it's changing uh, over the years. You cannot see on TV five years, but if you go ten years, you see the difference. And it's moving on, but in, in, quite slow, but it's moving on. We had, we had Craig O'Shaughnessy on the podcast, who I'm sure you, you're familiar with Craig. And Craig's statistics that he swears by is that 
when you come to the net in in pro tennis men's or women's the, the you win 65 percent of the points whereas baseline strategy you only win 47 or 48 as, a, as an average across across the tour so his his statistics and what he's trying to say is he believes that players need to come to the net more what's your opinion on that yeah i mean i i wish but he was probably counting the if, if you come to the net, you probably are ahead of the point already. So, uh, if you just knock an easy volley down, that's the percentage going higher. But uh, this this is tough to to count. Um, same with unforced errors or errors. I mean, maybe it's an unforced errors or it's a forced error sometimes. You know, it depends. So, I don't know. I mean, I I can just say that. It's really, really tough to come to the net nowadays compared to before because you could slice and come in. And if you slice to come in now, they pass you. It's simple as that. But any percentage he has, I, I, I don't care really because I, I can see. But it's yeah. not easy to, to play uh, like chip and charge tennis nowadays. Uh, then they hit too hard. And, and do you use statistics or data with your players? Is it something no. that you... No. no, I don't. I don't. I, I sometimes in serves, like how many percent there were percentage for serves and stuff. We, I think it's really. I I uh, I watch matches, yes, and but uh, I don't fall. I don't. I'm not a computer coach, really. I'm. I'm try to. I hope I. I'm not old enough to to lose my brain, but I I see quite well. And but sometimes I need to help with with the serve and and where the serve and so on. But. I'm not a big fan of, of of that. Maybe I'm old-fashioned. Why not? I think for the moment I I, I understand the game good and and I believe in a good memory still and and I think it's tough to know if if the if it's unforced or forced errors and stuff and and I I watch videos yes but mostly opponents not so much on my player uh, and then I see what they like and what they're good at and, and where they serve and stuff but I'm not maybe it's bad on me but I, I don't <laughs> I don't use it so much uh, it's not it's not for me to tell you how to coach Magnus you've done a you've had an incredible career I guess just uh, what the one thing the one thing on it that just to ask the question because obviously we, we've had a lot of these discussions with coaches and I think it's it's fascinating to hear different people's opinions is just I guess taking taking the data, not talking to the player about the data, but then helping you know you may be helping you see something a little bit different, maybe bringing something a bit more live and interpreting it in a different way. Do you, do you think that's the way that the the sport is going, and do you think it is an area that coaches, up and coming coaches, need to try and get on onto, or, or or do you think that will fizzle out? No, I think it's some players would love it, uh, and some players would not like it very much. Uh, and same with coaches. And and um, you need. Uh, I mean, at LTA has a, a room with with people who who analyzed for for the players, and and uh, I think it's maybe good if you do it in the right way. But uh, it's it's a lot. It's a tough sport to to also think about this when you play, and instead of only the, the ball and the opponent and the surface and the wind and the sun, I think sometimes we make it maybe too diff too difficult for the players. But 
again, I'm, I'm maybe old and the new stuff maybe is the, the right way to go uh, sometimes. I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, I'm right, but uh, I want my player also fresh, for, read the situation in the, in the match, see when the other guys, it's yeah. time to step up here because he's getting tired or to see where he serves because where he's throwing the ball instead of data, he goes there 85, 62%, I have to cover that, but see to learn to see where he's throwing the ball, that's why he's going there and stuff. So I'm not saying that I'm right, but I'm not using it so far, so much so far. So far. Uh, slightly off topic, who, yeah. who do you think is the next youngster to win a Grand Slam on the ATP Tour? Youngster means uh, under 20? No, an up and coming player. So I guess 23 years and younger. You know, up and up and up and coming from Felix to Sitsipas to Shapovalov to, I guess Verev just about. Who do you think is the is the next one that we're going to see? It's Shishipas, of course. He will win one soon, sooner or yeah. later. Okay. And then um, Rublev, if he's not injured, he he, he plays. <laughs> then we can talk about ground strokes. He's hitting the balls, fantastic. Yeah. There is, uh, there is some. Uh, yeah, there were some years before there were not. Nobody was coming, but now I would say they're coming. Some, some youngsters coming up, and, and it was that's interesting because the old ones. We've been lucky to have them so many years. Absolutely. Yeah. And and uh, I mean they're getting older, so so. But the youngsters are a little bit better now, I think, than before. So it, it's interesting. Starting so, to get interesting. So City Pass comes up to you, Magnus. And says you've you you and Radu have, have stopped stopped working together, and he says you're my man, you're my man for the next next year or two, but I also want to bring in a data analyst, who's gonna who's gonna give you the data, and I want you to interpret that to, to as part of your job of helping me win a Grand Slam. Are you taking that job on his on his terms? Are you telling him actually this is how I work? Who has the power, player or coach? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I will probably take the job and then talk with the other, with the, see how much he thinks about this uh, percentage and his, uh, see if it's uh, too much or too less. Or I will use it as a tool also, maybe see if I can change. I'm not that kind of guy, doesn't change, but. If it's too much, uh, it will be tough for me to work because then he will say uh, uh, that serve came. Uh, I mean, it, it's not easy to uh, for me to work uh, kind of that is quickly. But I don't know. I I think it's interesting. Yes, but that's not how I've been working over the this years. So, but uh, maybe it's the new stuff. Maybe it's the new things. It's <laughs> a, a good answer. And last couple of questions, Magnus. Yeah, you go back to that day in January two thousand and two. If you could give yourself one piece of advice the day after Thomas had won Australian Open, what bit of advice now that you know what you know would you give yourself? Uh, one more tablet of a headache uh, because I had a hangover. So, that was <laughs> <laughs> what was the what was the drink of choice? I don't know. I don't remember. No, uh, uh, you mean to Thomas or to anyone? No, to you. To you. To to you as that coach, a relatively young coach who's just 
won a Grand Slam. Is there anything that you would go back and say, I, I would have done that different, would have done this different, now that you know what you know? No, I would not say so. I think we, we Swedes are quite boring. It's, it, yes, it was a Grand Slam, but it was a tournament. I mean, we didn't change. Thomas didn't change as a person. I, I, yeah. I hope I didn't change as a coach. And and uh, it's it's sport. It's just it's, it's a big tournament, but it's just life goes on. Uh, I think you know, I didn't felt like I was better that day than uh, Thomas. Didn't think he was much better. He was just had a good two weeks. So yeah. it, it I, no, I don't think I would name anything I could change. No. And what what bit of advice would you give to a young up and coming coach who wants to become an ATP to a coach? Believe in yourself and don't listen so much from for the parents and the agents and the players. I mean, you need to have standpoints yourself. And, and I know it's tough. You, you wanted to be out on the big circuit and, and, and you want to be nice to the player. But if the player behaves bad or doesn't do it, you have to be strong there. It's, it's, a, it's a, easy for me to say working so many years and I'm not afraid of losing my job. But there's a lot of coaches are afraid of losing their jobs and then that's sad in a way because they are they're getting a little bit soft because of that i think great advice great advice magnus if you don't mind i have a quick fire round that we is tradition on the podcast okay are you are you up for that it means what's, what's that it's like quick quick answers so. you've got to give quick answers okay go ahead the atp cup or the davis cup davis cup should they be allowed to be coaching from the stands or not? Uh, yes. Five sets at Grand Slams or three? Five. Injury timeout for players or not? Like it is now. A four-minute warm-up before the match or players warm up and come straight off, straight onto the match court and play the match? No, like it is now. Rafa or Roger? Both. <laughs> one and one change to tennis that you would make. Uh, Hawkeye on every court. Automated Hawkeye that they had at the US Open or, or the one where the players have the challenges? I would like the the one they had in you. I like the one in US Open. There was no, 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 no talk about it. Just get, get on. You can't, it's perfect, I think. Just get on with the sport. I, I kind of like it. There's no complaints. It's no, it's, yeah. they just go on with this. And then sometimes in the matches, it could be really depending on the lines call. And it's, that's, but if you play on this big courts, you have Hawkeye, but I like to have Hawkeye everywhere. Yeah, that's good. Magnus, it's been, honestly, it's been great talking to you. It's, uh, it's some invaluable advice and insights there for, for everybody listening. So thank you so much for your time and good luck to you and Radu in the next few weeks. Thank you very much. It was nice to be involved in, the, in, the, in the, your program. What's the name of the, of the program? Control the Controllables is the podcast. Wow. Cool, cool name. Thank you very much. And good luck to Dominic team tonight. Yes. Come on. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, Magnus. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you, man. Bye-bye. Bye.
A massive thank you to Magnus. Loved speaking to you, Magnus, and hope you all enjoyed listening. A big thank you to you all for listening. We've got more great guests coming up, starting this Saturday with Sam Jalo. If you don't know who that is, look him up. How Tennis Saved My Life. Sam Jalo, How Tennis Saved My Life. Put it in Google. Find out a little bit about him. And we've got him coming to the podcast this Saturday. If you're new to the podcast, please go and have a look look at the list. There's some incredible guests I've been on. Make your way through them. In the gym, in the car. Quiet Sunday afternoon. We hope you take lots from them. Big, big thank you from myself, Dan Kiernan, my co-host John McGann. We are Control the Controllables.